my brother and I, you guys might know this, we're baseball fans, um, big baseball fans. And one of the things that we will do sometimes, and we actually did this semi-recently, is try to see who can recall from memory the World Series winner of each year and who they defeated. As far as we have been watching, that is. Not all the way back to 1900. That would be crazy. We're not that nerdy. But um, there is one year that neither of us forget the winner of. Because, not because the World Series itself that year was significantly memorable, but because of the events that surrounded that World Series were very memorable. So October 25th, 2003, I remember watching Game 6 of the World Series. And a young Josh Beckett was throwing a masterpiece against the Yankees. He's throwing for the Marlins. And he will end up throwing a complete game shutout to defeat the Yankees, who were nearly undefeatable at that time, to win the World Series for the Marlins. However, I didn't see that finish. I read about it in USA Today in a hotel the next day. Because somewhere in the middle of this game, I remember very vividly the horror of seeing the sky grow pitch black. And it wasn't nighttime yet. The gathering darkness was thick, and it felt like the apocalypse. And then, from this black sky was snowing, not beautiful snowflakes, but ash. And it was coming down. And um, I remember that in the middle of the game, the feed shuts off, and that's when you knew, oh, it's bad. It's really bad. And so that night, we evacuated from our house, because that was the old fire of 2003. And so we drove down, found a hotel, and of course, I was, you know, there's bigger things going on, but I was slightly bummed I didn't get to record it and see the rest and how to find out from the newspaper at the hotel. Um, But I remember that because that was a big moment. How many of you guys were here for the 2003 fire? That's good. Yeah. Okay, good. Significant. I don't know if that's good, but um, you'll relate to what I'm saying, I guess. A significant number of us. So we, we, everybody evacuates, and we're gone for roughly two weeks. We lose our hometown. We're in exile. And then we come back. And everybody wasn't sure what to expect when they came back. Because there's nobody up here giving us, like, we're just relying on what you're seeing on TV. You're like, I recognize that ridge. That's right by the 18. Oh, I know somebody lives there. And, like, that's all we have to know what's going on. And then we hear things like uh, Hook Creek was devastated. And and, um, you just hear all these snippets in someone's house. And we come back not sure. Like, what are we going to find? How black is it going to be? And so you're coming home, but it's not quite the home you left, it's different. I don't know if you remember this, but the whole community felt different when we came back. It was a, it was a, we entered a new era of the Lakerhood community. Well, I, I shared this not to bring back horror or to, just, but basically so that we can understand what the Jews are feeling in the book of Zechariah. Only magnify their experience ten or a hundredfold. They had watched their entire city come down in flames. They've watched, and it wasn't just some impersonal force destroying their home. It was, this force had a face. 
and they were wicked and they were cruel. They were the Babylonians and they worshiped foreign gods and mocked Israel's God. And they come in and they loot the temple. And I don't want to go into too much detail, but full on warfare is happening. And all the things they do to the humans that are left behind that weren't able to make it out. It was awful. There was trauma. And some are able to survive and are taken to Babylon in exile. They're there from 586 to 539 when a new king comes on the throne and says, Hey, I have a new policy. I'm not like the Babylonians. I deserve your respect. I want everybody to go back home. This is the Persian Empire. They take over. They tell people to go home. In fact, they give the Jews money to rebuild their temple. That's how they're controlling their empire, favor. And so the Jews get to come back. And Zechariah is part of this um, contingency of people that come back. Now, at first, they come back, and in 537, they begin to build the temple. You might remember this from Haggai. They begin to build the temple, but there's opposition. There's all kinds. They're probably building in something like California. Who knows? All kinds of permits and things are needed, and they just couldn't finish building it. And so they give up. And they're like, well, we can work on our houses and remodel our kitchens and build this nice stadium to entertain ourselves with. And, you know, they're focusing on themselves. Well... Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene at the same time, 520 BC. So this is like a 15, 16 year hiatus. By the way, that's about the time it's been since the old fire in 2003. So imagine if we just didn't, we came back, we're like, yeah, the community's in tatters, we'll just leave it alone. That much time has gone by. And so Haggai and Zechariah step in and say, guys, it's time. It's time to rebuild this temple. So we saw in Haggai, The reason for rebuilding is because we need to build in our lives containers to receive the grace of God. Now, Zechariah is going to tell them, okay, rebuild, but I want you to focus on the future. Because this temple we're building here is just the beginning of what God is going to do through it. Okay, so in this dark night, Zechariah has eight dreams. Now, regretfully, we're not actually going to cover this entire book. I would like to focus on the first half in more detail instead of overviewing the whole book. So let me give you the overview real quick, okay? Zechariah chapters 1 through 6, he has eight dreams. He shares them with the people. We're going to look at that, as you can tell, eight dreams of home. Um, chapters 7 and 8, there are four messages because the people are like, well, should we fast or should we not? And there's all these questions about fasting. And Zechariah basically says a couple things like, look, what is a fast if you're letting your neighbor go hungry? It's not about your righteousness, but it's about helping and being righteous to your people. And so he encourages them. Um, and then in chapters uh, 9 through 14, the last third of the book, you have two prophecies in which you have prophecies of Jesus riding on a donkey, you have Armageddon prophesied, and you have the return of the king prophesied. All kinds of end-time stuff. So eight dreams, four messages, two prophecies. That's the book in a nutshell. Now, you can imagine the disappointment of the Jews as they're coming back to Jerusalem. Why do they stop building? Because they're disappointed. They come back, they start building, but then soon they realize, wait a minute. All of the prophets' promises that when we come back, God will give us prosperity, that when we come back, he'll give us our king, that when we come back, all the nations will come to us and we will have our Messiah ruling over the world again. Like, all these promises, it's not happened. 
Look at us. We're pathetic. We're some middle country with an average economy, struggling to build a temple. We're a small remnant. None of it's coming true. And in Haggai, we learned, they're actually barely able to make ends meet. What's going on? God's given up. And then Zechariah says, oh, no, he hasn't. The disappointment you feel will be gone. We just need to look forward to God. So that's what these eight dreams are going to do. They're going to shift the people's attention toward what God intends to do. Look, you're disappointed. I get it. You're home, but it's not the home you thought it would be. We've pursued things in life, and it ended up not being what we thought it would be. We've all been disappointed by different pursuits and endeavors. But what Zechariah will say to us as he's saying to them is, Come dream with me of the one who will give us the desires we're yearning for that this world cannot provide for us. So in the midst of this rubble and this mess and these ruins, Zechariah is saying, no, 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 don't look at the fact that we're a remnant, that we're rubble, that we're ruins. Look beyond, look beneath, and look behind all of this. And you will find beyond the visual reality, there's a dreamality in which God is going to bring the prosperity. He's going to bring the nations. He's going to bring the king, and all will be well. So Zechariah chapter 1. Begin in verse 7. This, by the way, if you want a timeline, is two months after Haggai's last words. So Haggai was preaching, and now two months later, he passes the mic to Zechariah. In Zechariah 1 verse 7, he says this, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shavat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night. There you go. These next six chapters is everything he saw in the night, which is why we call these dreams. Eight dreams to direct our desires toward the God who's going to bring the future to us. I saw in the night. Oh, so before we get into them. These are going to be crazy. Anybody read Zechariah this week? You're like, what is this saying? Yeah, dreams. Have you ever heard somebody else share their dream? What are you saying? And you're going way too long. I don't care about your dream. (laughs) I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, that's brown, and white horses. Four horses, they're in a glen, they're undercover. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. Verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, why, these are they whom Yahweh has set to patrol the earth. Ah, so we learn that these four horsemen are patrolling the earth. It's a reconnaissance mission. And they've gathered in this glen because it's a secret mission. And now they're giving the report. What have you seen around the earth? This is our report. We're going to hear it. So verse 11. They answered the angel of Yahweh, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of Yahweh said, Oh, Yahweh of hosts, 
How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Wait, what? The report says the earth is at rest. And then this angel replies in agony saying, oh, why have you given up on us? I thought peace on earth was a good thing. No, not for the Jew right now. Imagine what they're thinking. Ah, we were ruled by the Babylonians. Now we're ruled by the Persians. We just want our Messiah to take the throne now. So what are they hoping to hear? That the patrol goes around the earth and says, the earth is unstable. Now's the time that Israel will rise. That's what they're hoping to hear. So the angel's dismay is, Lord, when will you end our agony? Verse 13. Yahweh answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. He's going to say four things. One, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. Now we think of jealousy as bad. This is the jealousy in the sense of I'm protective of. I love this people. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, number two, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Wait, but we're a remnant, we're rubble, we're ruins. But God's telling him in this dream, I have returned. You just haven't seen it yet. Open your eyes. And so that's what Zechariah is going to help us do is open our eyes. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Number three, my house shall be built in it. So the temple will be built. Don't doubt that you're never going to get it done. It will be done, declares Yahweh of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Verse 17, cry out again. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. That's four. Overflow with prosperity. And Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So they come back. They're disappointed. Ah, this is awful. We should have stayed in the great and glorious Babylon. It's like the New York City of America. And then we come here to Kansas. No offense. I'm just <laughs> something I'm, I don't know. Um, we come back to this. And Zechariah is saying, yeah, I know. I know. It's disappointing that the night is silent. But despite the silent night, God is actually on the move. He's on the move. You haven't seen it yet, but hear what he says. I am jealous for Jerusalem. I am, have returned. I'm here with mercy. I will help you rebuild the house, my house, the temple. And you will finally overflow with my blessing. Okay, so God is on the move despite the silent night. That's what all these dreams are going to keep showing them. So dream two, verse 18. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, I always wonder if they just literally see horns floating or if they're seeing animals with the horns. It never seems to be clear. But if so, you would imagine there's two animals here, right? Four horns would be two animals. Um, he's like, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. 
So two beasts have scattered the people of God. Well, that makes sense. Assyria scattered the northern kingdom, and Babylon scattered the southern kingdom. That would make sense. So perhaps he's seeing Assyria and Babylon portrayed as beasts. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. In verse 21, I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these, the horns, are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, the craftsmen, have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. All right. So these craftsmen are being brought... Okay, this is dying on me, sorry. The craftsmen are being brought... They're, they're symbols of defeating Assyria and Babylon. In other words, look, you've already seen Babylon fall. God can take care of us. That's about all we can make sense of in this dream, is that God's got it handled. The beasts will be tamed. Dream number three, chapter two. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So this is to mark real estate for building, okay? Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Zechariah, say to him, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares Yahweh, and I will be the glory in her midst. Whoa, okay. So here we have an angel ready to measure it out so that, so that Jerusalem's walls can be built. But then this other angel says, no, no wall. If you put a wall around Jerusalem, you're going to limit what God's about to do here. Because he's about to bring so many nations, so many people, and so much prosperity to this city, it will be bursting at its seams. Don't put a wall there. You want this thing to sprawl. And besides, God will be the protector of this city. So, Zechariah is blown away by hearing God has bigger plans than even they have for themselves. Please hear that. God has bigger plans than we have for ourselves. We're really good at wall building. Not just between us and others, but we sort of set a a wall and say, that's about as good as I am. And God's like, really? You want me to cram all this and that? It's not going to fit. But we want our walls. We want the security to know, oh, I have measured my accomplishments. I've done this and that. And God's like, stop that. Just relate with me. Be friends with me. And you will see that you don't need walls. I will be your protector. And you will grow and expand. God has bigger plans than we have for ourselves. And so, in chapter 2, verse 6, Zechariah encourages the people, up, up. Flee from the land of the north, that's Babylon. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He wants them to come home. Yeah, I know Jerusalem's a little humdunk, little village, but it will be better than Babylon someday. Don't compare it. So he's inviting the Jews to come back home, but 
um, one day, it's going to be more than the Jews. Look at this in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh, and many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day. You hear that? The walls must come down because God's going to bring the world to Jerusalem. So Israel, come on. This will be the center of the earth one day. Let's take our eyes off of the other centers of the earth right now and put them where they belong. That's what the dream says. It says that will one day be the center of the earth. Let's set our hearts upon Jerusalem. Sorry, next week. We got to do 15 psalms that yearn for journeying to Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? Vision number, or dream number four, chapter three. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What a contrast. It's like being in a bathtub of hot water and cold water on each side. That's just crazy. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? A brand plucked from fire is something that's like just snatched out of the fire before it's like destroyed, right? Jerusalem has just been snatched. Um, now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Well, let them let them put a clean turban on his head too. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And the angel of Yahweh solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The branch. Back in Isaiah 11, we saw the branch is Jesus. Israel was like a tree, and it was cut down in the, in the exile. The kingdom fell. But from that stump, Isaiah said there will be a shoot, and the shoot will become a branch. This is their Messiah. This is Jesus. Okay. Now, Joshua is the high priest. And so as a priest, he's representing the people to God. And as a representative of the people, it's very likely that this dream is showing Israel their condition before God. Through Joshua, right? Through this one man, he's representing all of God's people. And he's wearing filthy clothes. The word filthy is unique to Zechariah. And it has some root words that are similar to the Hebrew words for excrement and vomit. So he's wearing something incredibly filthy. Maybe it's even sticking to his skin a little bit. Um, this is the condition of the people of God in their sin. And God wants to remove it and give them clean clothes and establish his position as one 
of his priests. But Satan's there to accuse. And you and I know how true this is, that we feel accused by our dirt all the time. And if it's not Satan himself, he's doing it through your neighbor. Can you believe what Ron said about me? He said I have a big ego. Who does he think he is? Um, Rather than getting angry at each other, let's remember that the devil likes to use people to make us angry at them. That's his whole goal is to divide us. He will accuse us, and sometimes he'll do it through people you love. But he's the one behind all accusation, all guilt. Anytime you feel shame and guilt, that's the devil, the accuser right there. God might convict you, but it's so different than shame and guilt. God's just saying, hey, I love you, but I've got better robes for you. Satan's like, you don't even deserve robes. Let's just burn the guy. But this dream reminds the people, no matter how dismal their situation in the land is, and no matter how dismal of a people they are, and they feel like a poor representation of their so-called great God, God wants to remind them through Zechariah's dream, no, you are great. Don't look at yourselves the way you see yourselves. Look at yourselves the way I see you. Because I have clothed you in pure garments. Chapter 4, the fifth dream. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awaked out of his sleep, and he said to me, What do you see? I love this. Can you imagine waking up your partner in the middle of the night and being like, what do you see? I mean, can you imagine all the responses of that? Zachariah's like, come on, dude. Maybe he's even got the flashlight in his eye. What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lamp. I like to imagine he's guessing. A lampstand? All of gold? With a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it oh and there are two olive trees by it one on the right of the bull and the other on its left and i said to the angel who talked with me what are these my lord then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me do you not know what these are don't you love it when you talk to people and you ask them something and they're like, act like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Like, you're so dumb. You're, get out of the rock you're living in. Don't you know? No, my Lord. That's why I asked. <laughs> Verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Says Yahweh of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? That's like the mountain of rubble, this pile, this heap of Jerusalem, which is not yet even quite rebuilt. So who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it. Zerubbabel. So you may remember from Haggai, Zerubbabel is the governor, Joshua is the high priest, right? These two are ruling in tandem, the king and the priest, or the governor. He's not really a king, but... The ruler and the priest. So Rubabel is going to bring down this mountain so we can build the temple. But it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. We'll come back to that. I want to finish this dream, then we'll come back to that verse. 
Verse 8, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, don't hate on this small rural town of Jerusalem because it's going to be great one day. Don't despise the small things. You're going to see Zerubbabel with a plumb line saying, we've built this through the Spirit of God, right? So now these seven are the eyes of Yahweh, which range through the whole earth. Verse 11, then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, Uh, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oils poured out? So weird, like dreams. He asked the question twice. He doesn't get a response, right? Perhaps this is to gain our attention. In verse 13, he answers. No, in verse 12, he answers. Do you not know? (laughs) Again, do you not know what these are? Oh, that's verse 13. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. Verse 13, he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones. That could be Joshua and Zerubbabel. But I really like what one commentator said, is that the two anointed ones are the two prophets of the time right now, Haggai and Zechariah. And here's why. This verse is quoted in Revelation chapter 11 when you see the two witnesses or the two prophets during the Great Tribulation. And they're there. And guess guess where they are, by the way? They're right in the Temple Mount where they were rebuilding it. In, in uh, Revelation chapter 11, they got the measuring line and they're rebuilding the temple. And then there are these two witnesses. And it says in Revelation eleven four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So who are these prophets in Revelation? I don't know. But they're likened to the prophets here in Zechariah. That's cool, huh? So here's the, okay, here's the picture we have. We have a lampstand. The lampstand that the menorah in the temple, okay? So it's, look, it's meant to look like a tree carved out of gold. It's got a branch and it's got or a trunk and it's got six branches on either side, making a total of seven lights on top, okay? That's what it looks like. Now, the, the lights were little cups that held olive oil and they had wicks and they burned off of olive oil. Now, to ensure that the light never goes out, Zechariah is seeing an olive tree on this side and an olive tree on the other side with pipes that are flowing to the lamp so that it never runs out of olive oil. Pretty cool, huh? So here we go. The light of the temple, which is part... The light of the lamp, which is part of the temple, is going to shine forth precisely because of two gifts that God's given his people here. One gift is the two trees. Who are these two trees? They're the two witnesses, which we're concluding are two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. These two prophets represent the word of God going to the people. The word of God will fuel the lampstand to give it light, in other words. But God told um, Zechariah, that Zerubbabel is going to build this thing, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So here's what we need. We need both word 
and we need spirit. Often, we're stuck in places that emphasize one over the other. So some places do spirit without word, and they blow up in a frenzy. Some places emphasize word without spirit, and they dry up and wither. You know what I mean, right? Well, our brothers over there have it wrong, because the Greek word actually is, a, they, got the pre, they got the tense wrong. So if you see this 13th article of the letter, the, it indicates that this is actually the perfect past tense, not the past tense. And so therefore, it changes the meaning, and they are doctrinally in error. And the church just nods and sleeps in the pews like, uh, we're right, okay. Word without spirit, you dry up. Spirit without word, though, is like, how are you guys feeling today? What do we want to do today? All right, let's jump and hoot and holler and swing like monkeys from the chandeliers. Notice we chose not to have chandeliers. but <laughs> um, that's what me, So you can either blow up or dry up, or you can grow up. That's when you have the Word of God with the Spirit of God working in tandem. The Word of God tells us what is the Spirit of God and what is the Spirit of some other phony thing, right? It tells us the difference. The Spirit of God brings life to the Word of God, so it's not the word of a dictionary or a thesaurus. Dream number six, chapter five. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. Okay. And he said, what do you see? I said... I see a flying scroll. Totally normal in a dream, though. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. Translation, 30 feet by 15 feet, okay? Which is weird, because scrolls back then were 30 feet long, but they weren't 15 feet high. They were about a foot high. So in other words, this scroll is massive. It's, It's covering everything, so no one can miss it. And so then he tells him that, look, on this scroll are the curses of everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely. And he explains to Zechariah that this scroll is going to go into the house of the evildoers and it's going to, well, if you look at the last verse, it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. That's verse 4. So, the sinners need to get their act together. And now, dream number 7, verse 5. We're in chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. You can almost imagine a little Amazon smile face on it. (laughs) Prime shipping to Babylon. This is the basket that is going out. And he answered, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaded weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they going? Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar. That's the land. That's where Babylon is. Babylon's in Shinar. To the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. All right. So the storks are shipping this woman to Babylon. 
Now, it sounds very bizarre, I know. But here's what is going on. Do not imagine a real flesh and blood woman. She doesn't fit in the basket. Imagine rather a statue. Statue of a woman. This, in other words, is an idol. And the messenger is telling Zechariah, this is the wickedness of Israel, and shoves it in the basket and delivers it to Babylon. This, in other words, needs to go back where it came from. Return it. The wings of storks carrying it is very interesting because storks in Leviticus were unclean animals. And then in verse 11, it said, build a house for it. Well, there you go. This isn't a house for a woman. Like, oh, I got my mansion. This is the way the Bible uses house. It's a temple for this idol. So we see they need to clean up their sin, this flying scroll. Now they need to get rid of their idolatry. And all of this culminates with the last dream in chapter 6, the eighth dream. Notice that this is coming full circle to the first dream. So the dreams are going to complete right here. So instead of a reconnaissance of secret horsemen, there's going to be chariots. Chariots are not secret reconnaissance. They are vehicles of war. So the silent night is no longer silent, is it? So look at this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. Bronze typically refers to judgment in the Bible. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth dappled horses, all of them strong. And by the way, you should probably be thinking of Revelation by now with all these four sets of horses and horsemen. Revelation kicks off the disasters with four horsemen. So we see something akin to what God has up his sleeve in the end, right? This is exciting. Um, Verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? It's the common question, isn't it? <laughs> you might as well have had a sign, right? After every dream, like, and the sign says, What is this? <laughs> what am I seeing? Uh, in verse 5, the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven. So each is going in a different place. After presenting themselves before Yahweh of all the earth, The chariot, verse 6, with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. So north and south. North is Babylon, south is Egypt, typically. That's usually what's referred to when they say north and south. So God's going to judge. He's making war against the enemies of his people. Um, Verse 6. No, verse 7. When the strong horses came out, They were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. In other words, when God does what he's going to do there, I'll be like, ah, the world is right. So that's good news for Israel. And that's how it ends. So here's, here's the deal. The dreams, night, the silent night. Sometimes it's discouraging when we feel like we're, in a, we're stuck. Like we're disappointed with the lot in life or our season in life. And the silent night is the worst thing because you just want something to happen. And the first dream, it seems like nothing's happening. But then God has to say, no, 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 don't give up yet. Open your eyes. Shows them more dreams. and Shows in a myriad of weird ways that God is working in their midst. And then the last dream, finally, look Despite the silent night, God is on the move. And for you and I, 
It may feel like we're in a rut. It may feel like things are not going the way they should. We've been waiting and waiting for this to happen. We're disappointed with results on that. We're impatient with the people we're trying to minister to. We're just waiting and waiting for the doors to finally open. Whatever it is, the silent night is agonizing. But what we need to do in these silent nights, especially the general season we all find ourselves in, the silent night of Jesus has come and is yet to return. This silent night can feel like, oh, God, when are you going to do something? The dreams say, very soon, I've begun. Open your eyes. C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Here's the problem. We have desires, and dreams are illuminations of our desires. But we're disappointed because we are not, reality is not meeting with the dream. What we have is not fulfilling our desire. That's the silent night. Nothing is going the way it should. But Zechariah dreams to move the people forward. And he would encourage us in the same way. Look, dream, what, what, what are the dreams in your heart? Don't limit. Don't say, oh, but God can't do that. The dreams and desires he's put in our heart are indications. They're encouragements that what we have going on around us is not all it's meant to be. That there's more. So don't settle. Don't build a mansion. Stay in a tent. Get ready to move. So in response to what Lewis says, some people see disappointment in this life and say, this is what the fool says. The fool says, I'm just disappointed with what I got. So guess what? I want more. Give me more of this world. The wife I had, eh, just give me a better one. The job I had, eh, give me a better one. The car I had, eh, give me a better one. They're seeking more and more to find their desire because they're disappointed. The fool wants more of this world. Another response can be the grump. The grump who's woken up. He's woke, I guess. He... It's grown up. There's no Neverland. There's no gold at the other end of the rainbow. All there is is this world. So just be grumpy and get on with it. There's a lot of um, really smart people who take this approach to life. So the fool wants more of this world. The grump says there's only this world. But the Christian who has hope, the dreamer, says, yeah, disappointment tells me there's another world, and that I'm made for that. And so, we don't have to be too crazy with our dreaming, because we've actually seen some of this happening. God is on the move, is he? Yeah. You here tonight are evidence he's on the move. Zechariah is trying to build this temple. The temple's built. The temple's built. Let's finish in chapter 6, verse 15. This is not part of the dream anymore. Um, but what we see is 
Joshua is being crowned as a ruler, which is strange. The priest is not supposed to be the king. And yet, it's this symbol of one day, God's going to have the priest and the king be one because Jesus is going to be the son of God. He's going to be the priest, therefore, and he's going to be the Messiah, the king. And then we see in 615, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of Yahweh. Those who are far off shall come to help build the temple of Yahweh. At the end of the dreams, it says, look, you'll know God is on the move despite the silent night because those who are far off will come and help build the temple of Yahweh. So before worship, I read Ephesians chapter 2, and that's exactly what Paul says. He uses the same language. In Ephesians 2, verse 13, Paul said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then you go down to verse 19. So then you who you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our disappointments are gone. Our desires fulfilled. We've reached our home, our true home in God. And we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. What did he just say? In a lot of words, Paul just said, God brought those who are far off, the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jews who didn't have this magnificent temple. He's brought them near through Christ. He's brought them right here. And through all these people, he's creating the temple that Zechariah was dreaming about. The temple in which God would be in the midst of his people. The nations would flood in. The prosperity would come. And Paul says in Ephesians, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's happening in Christ. He is the Joshua. He is the Zerubbabel. He's the Messiah, priest, king, who's come to bring people from every corner to build his temple, not as a building, but as a people, as bodies. And now the worship of God is happening. The dreams have begun to come true. So yes, it's a silent night. It feels like it's taking forever. God's been slumbering for far too long. But yet we see the evidence every week as we gather that the temple is alive and well and it's functioning and we are adding to this temple by bringing an outsider in every time. Every time we do that, the temple is growing and we're no longer walled because we're sprawling and we're spilling out of what we thought was possible. Friends, Let's not wall off who we are. Let's trust Yahweh to be our protection. Let's trust God to be our protection. Let's look to Jesus, our king and priest, as he leads us forward. And let's realize the dreams are coming true. Let's keep on dreaming of the world to come, lest we get too attached to this one or to say this is all there is. And then you will live in perpetual disappointment. What is hell? Who knows? I'll tell you this. It is full of disappointment. What is heaven? Dreams come true. Every single one of them. Let's pray.